Well, good morning. It's good to see you. If you are new, we are so glad you are here. Uh, the past a few days, we've been in Mississippi. And let me tell you what, it was, it was so hot that I sweated. And it's so good to be back. I mean, with the snow and the cold weather. How many of you are so glad to see that snow? Let's see those hands. Thousands, just thousands, yeah. <laughs> I love it when it snows like this. Our backyard has some trees, a little green belt, and it was that moist snow just hangs on the trees. It was truly a winter wonderland. Well, today a couple of cool things are happening. I was kind of moving around uh, the building. Today was our fifth year anniversary. Maybe mentioning the announcements. I wasn't here during the announcements. Did we mention that fifth year? Okay, fifth year celebration for our Arabic congregation. Uh, so that's really cool. Let's praise God for that. That's cool. We also have a new members class right now, the biggest we've ever had. It's one of the rooms kind of like right through there, like 30 to 40. It's like amazing. The, I mean, the room was absolutely packed. So God's doing some really, really cool things. Well, we continue our series today on the gospel of Mark. And I'm going to put an image up here to kind of set your minds into a frame of uh, learning readiness of what we're going to look at this morning. Here's that image. So who's that? It's the devil, right? So it's a little drawing of the devil. That's really the, the focus of today. We're going to be studying uh, Mark 3, whoops, Mark 3, 13 through 35. You want to get your Bibles out. And this section actually comes in three parts. If you, if you uh, read through it, Part one is when Jesus picks his apostles who are going to be charged with carrying on this gospel when Jesus ascends to heaven. The second part, Jesus rebukes some of the religious leaders. He's, he's in conflict with them a whole lot. He rebukes them because they say that he's getting his power by Satan, that he's possessed by Satan. So he responds with three illustrations to obviously deny that. Third part we see where Jesus' family hears that he's so busy, they think he's lost his mind, he's crazy. Yeah, his family actually thought he was crazy early on in his ministry. But I want to focus on that middle section today on what does the Bible say about the devil and demons? Now, unfortunately, in the West, we've kind of dumbed down uh, the, the belief in uh, a literal uh, devil, a literal Satan. We've kind of painted him as a harmless, mischievous little guy that's got, you know, he's got the, got the little pitchfork and the little horns and a little goatee and a little tail. He's really kind of, kind of innocuous. He, he whispers in our ear to like eat 10 of these instead of eating two. So that's kind of what he does. Now I'm going to date myself a little bit because as we look at what we will learn from scripture this morning about the devil. Primarily, our world looks at him. The Western world is pretty harm, harmless. So, go date myself. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a comedian in the U.S. He was a very, very popular comedian. And he coined this little phrase. Some of you, if you recall, were watching American TV back then, and it was, his name was Flip Wilson. And he was known for this little phrase, and he would do it just like a comedian does. He's something like this, like, the devil made me do it, or something like that. That's a kind of, not a great invitation, but he, he was hilarious. He was a great, great comedian. So that kind of fed this view that the devil's just kind of harmless. You know, the devil made him, like, spend too much on clothes, or eat too much at a buffet, or, you know, eat 10 cookies instead of two cookies. He's harmless. Well, it's very, very interesting. I did a little research. And to find out how many Canadians 
believe in a literal devil. The best I could find was a survey of 1,005 Canadians in 2004. And here's the percentage of Canadians in that survey that believe in a literal devil. 37%. Now, since it's so old, that survey, you know it's less than it was then. Well, let me tell you what, guys. Satan is real. He's a literal, personal spirit being committed to your and my defeat, discouragement, and destruction. And he condemns us in every way he can. He hates anything good because he hates God. He compounds the problems we face in this world. He's behind every evil act ever done, ever among uh, mankind. He's ultimately behind every personal problem we face because he brought sin into the world in the Garden of Eden. We're going to see in just a moment. So even though this topic is not preached a whole lot or maybe studied a whole lot, it's really important for us to understand it. Because like, think of war. The good guys against the bad guys. The good guys... The more they know about the bad guy's ploys and plans, the better they're able to defeat the bad guy, right? So this is kind of what I'm focusing here to this morning is we understand some about the bad guy. I'm using that very loosely. It's going to help us be able to defeat him in our lives much more consistently. So here is the big idea. Read it to yourself. So, let's take it apart. Consistent spiritual victory. Don't we all want that? Sure, we all want that requires that we have at least a rudimentary basic understanding of the enemy. Now, I'm going to interchange titles, Satan, uh, the devil, uh, enemy, because they're all, they all mean the same thing. And also, when I say that, I'm also talking about this, this horde of spiritless beings called demons that are committed to what Satan is committed to as well. Now, in 30 minutes, I can only scratch the surface, but I want to kind of set your mind uh, and put a framework around where we're going to go in the next 30 minutes. Key concepts, okay? Some key concepts here. We're going to look at what Jesus said from this passage, okay? Because we learned some about Satan from this passage. We're going to look at where did Satan come from? Where was his origin? We're going to look at the ploys Satan, the enemy, uses against you and me. And our responses, some practical ways that we can respond. So... Let's look at the scriptures here. We're going to look at Mark 3 again, 13 through 35. And I'm going to be using the New Living Translation because it kind of gives a more colorful picture of this whole subject here. So let's kind of look through some of these verses. Verse 13, he says, Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain, and he called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them, and he called them his apostles. And they were to accompany him. He would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out deacons. So here in this first part of this passage, Jesus is picking out the 12, the apostles who would carry on the gospel when Jesus ascended to heaven. These would be his inner core. Four fishermen, one Haiti tax collector, one guy from the Zealots, which was a political party that was bent on uh, overthrowing Rome, and then six we don't know much about. So he chose these 12. He gave them three responsibilities. See if you can pick out those responsibilities. They were first to what? Accompany him, a different color here. That means they were going to hang around with him. They were going to live with him. They are going to learn from him. They were going to do what he did. Then the second thing they would do, they would preach the gospel. The third thing they would do, 
they would cast out demons. And this idea of casting out demons really points to Jesus' superiority and uh, Jesus' defeat of Satan. Now, in verse 20, Mark records that after he entered the house, hordes of people followed him. And everywhere you go, you see that people are following Jesus in great big crowds. Everywhere you go. The disciples were so busy, they couldn't even eat. I mean, so busy dealing with all these people, you know, healing, teaching, and so forth. And in verse 21, we find something very, very interesting. When his family heard what was happening, that is, he couldn't eat, he was just so busy, they tried to take him away. And here's what they thought about Jesus, his family, his blood relatives. He's out of his mind. Can you believe that? That's what the scripture says. When they heard about Jesus and how busy he was, and that he was so busy, he wasn't taking care of himself, for example, like Eden, they thought, oh my, he's just too stressed out. And this stress has really created some problems with his thinking, we got to go get him and take him back. Now, it's very interesting, on a side note here, one of the um, key points that you can share with others, and why you can, um, uh, and in apologetics, that is defending the gospel, is to point out how Jesus' family changed their perspective of him. Here, they thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. But when he died and rose from the dead and they saw him, they did an about face and they believed the message of Jesus. Only if Jesus rose from the dead would his family have made that shift in their thinking. So, jump into the third section of the passage. Mark adds this about his family. Jesus' mother and brothers, they heard what was happening. They came in the crowd. And somebody in the crowd said, hey, Jesus, your, your, your mother and your brothers, they're, they're outside. And so the 12, he was probably sitting in this house, the 12 around him, and, the, and they cram others in the house and outside to hear what he, was, what he was saying, how he was teaching. Well, here's what he said. He said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So he's telling these 12, hey, you have left your, your vocations and left your, uh, what, what you were doing in your life and you're following me. So we have now become this special family closer, closer really than blood brothers and blood sisters. And he was also saying that Jesus' true family, brothers, sisters, mother, so forth, would not be limited to just these 12, but to all those who believe in him all those who place their faith in Jesus. They would become a part of his eternal spiritual family. Now, let's go back to that middle section that we're going to focus on now. Okay? Jesus uh, says in verse 22, but the teachers of the law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to do what he's doing to cast out demons. Well, Jesus, he heard this. He knew what was going on in their mind and hearts. So he said, hey, come here. He called him over and he responded with an illustration. He actually gave three illustrations, but one, one, the illustration was kind of one big illustration. And here's what he says. He poses a question to them. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? How, how, how can that happen? Then he says uh, the illustration, a kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Jesus is simply using logic here. He says, now think about it. When there's a country, when there's fighting within, and there's civil war, if that continues, what's going to happen? That country is going to dissolve. It's just going to implode and then explode. By the same token, you Pharisees, by 
uh, that same thinking, does it really make any sense that you say I'm possessed by Satan? If that were true, Satan would be casting out Satan and his demons, and that would mean civil war in his kingdom. If I'm doing this by Satan's power, then Satan is working against himself. How logical is that? Well, that makes sense. Okay, so that's illustration one that he uses. Then he says this, similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. You ever know a family that was just constantly at each other's throats and maybe you've been part of that kind of family. You know what happens. Family just falls apart. So he has this second illustration here. Then he adds another one. He says, and if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Just like that family or that nation. If there's civil war within, it's not going to survive. But then he adds a third illustration. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? That is, who can break into a house and steal his stuff? Only someone who's even stronger than that person in the house. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Jesus is pointing here out to the fact that he's not empowered by Satan. He's empowered by God himself, who is the one even stronger than Satan who enables Jesus to cast out this demon. You see, Jesus came to deliver people from bondage from sin and bondage from Satan. Then Jesus refers to something called the unpardonable sin. You ever heard that phrase before? Unpardonable sin? Wonder kind of what, what that means? Well, let me explain to you what it means. This is where it comes from. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. Good news. But, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Now, let me explain what I believe to be as the unpardonable sin. First of all, Jesus is not equating sin against the Holy Spirit to someone being possessed by an evil spirit because Jesus cast out many evil spirits and those people would come to faith, come to Christ. They were forgiven. Rather, he's referring to the heart's so hard in these Pharisees that they would make this wild accusation against Jesus. And here's what I believe about unpardonable sin. I believe that a person commits this sin when over a long period of time, they continually and persistently sin and continually and persistently reject God, refuse to repent, refuse to turn to Christ. As a result, there comes some point in my belief that the Holy Spirit no longer draws them to Jesus. They've crossed this line of no return. They are destined to eternity without God in a real terrible place called hell, and there's no other chance to turn to Christ. They have committed the unpardonable sin because they have hardened their hearts to God to the point of no return. Now, neither you, you nor myself can make that designation about somebody else. We can't look at a person's life and say, well, they've committed the unpardonable sin. Only God knows that. So we can't make that statement ourselves. And if such a person cannot be forgiven, it's not so much that God refuses to forgive them, but rather that the sinner refuses to allow God to forgive them, to receive God's grace. Now, if you're worrying, like, well, I wonder if I've committed to the unpardonable sin, the very fact that, you're, that you, you worry about it, it means you, you haven't. I love what uh, one uh, uh, commentator said. He says, there is such a thing as a sin which is never forgiven. Then he says, 
But those who are troubled about it are most likely to, to, unlikely to have ever committed it. So if you're worried about it, you don't have to worry anymore. You have not committed that, that sin. All right, let's go back to our big idea again. Big idea was consistent spiritual victory requires something that we understand the enemy that we face. So we've already seen what Jesus said in that passage of scripture, a little bit about, about Satan, we learned there. Now, let's look at where, did, where in the world did Satan come from? Where was his origin? Well, as you look in the pages of scripture, it progressively tells us more and more about Satan. We see him first in the Garden of Eden. Job, we learn more about Satan from Job, the other Old Testament writers and the prophets. Then we learn about Satan when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and then the Gospels, and then the letters written after the Gospels. So we progressively understand uh, who sa uh, Satan is. We see him first as that embodied snake, and then the scripture unpacks more and more about him. Now, there are two Old Testament passages, if you want to read those later, Ezekiel 28, in Isaiah 14, they speak of two, um, uh, two kings of ancient cities. One was Tyre and one was Babylon. And scholars say that based on these prophecies in these two books, we can learn more about who Satan is. Ezekiel 28 tells us that before the creation, before Genesis, that God created Satan, this beautiful angel. He was a beautiful angel called Lucifer, more beautiful, more powerful than all the other created beings. He had a special place, maybe right underneath, underneath the Trinity. Then Isaiah 14, Billy Graham writes, and in Isaiah 14, we see something about the heart of Lucifer, what caused him to be cast out of heaven. So let me give you what Billy Graham calls all the five wills. First of all, Isaiah 14 says, how you have fallen from heaven, O morning star. He was called morning star. Son of the dawn, you have been cast down to earth. This refers to him being cast out of heaven. And who... Once laid low the nation, you who once laid low the nations. Now, here are the five I wills that Billy Graham says reflects the heart of Satan while he was cast out of heaven. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mountain, the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And then one more, I will make myself like the Most High. So what do each of these mean? This is what Billy Graham says. I will ascend to heaven, this one here, it was reflecting Satan's discontentment as a subject. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That reflects his unholy ambition to be God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. This indicates his thirst for God's power. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. This tells us he was jealous for God's glory. The glory that only God deserves. The final one here, I will make myself like the most high. This indicates that he wanted to be worshipped. The bottom line is that Satan wanted to rise above his intended purpose. And the intended purpose was to serve and to love and to worship God. And that's the essence of sin. Here's the essence of sin. To rise above our purpose for being created. And what was that to do? To serve and worship and to love God. Now, when these uh, 
qualities rose up in the heart of Lucifer. God would have nothing to do with it. This great cosmic mutiny took place. Satan was, Satan was cast out of, out of heaven. And a third of all, the, the angels that agreed with him were cast out too. And now we call them demons. They were judged and sentenced to death row. Satan was defeated at the cross. And in the final judgment, there will be full and final uh, completion of that sentence. Now, in the meantime, Satan's causing havoc in the world. In your life and in my life, he masquerades as an angel of light by making that which is so sick and horrible and yucky look enticing. He's jealous because God is something that he doesn't have. That is to be worshipped. He hates God. He's fueled by this unrelating hatred of God. He can't get to God. So you know who he gets to? You and me. He gets to his children. That's how he takes it out against God. And it's important to realize too, God, uh, rather, Satan is not omni-anything, not omnipowerful, not omnipresent, not omniscient. But only God has those qualities. But because there are so many demons, that seems to be that evil is just everywhere. It seems like he's omni-this and that, but he's not. He's limited in his power and his reach. Okay, so we've seen what Jesus said. We've looked at where he came from. Now... What are his ploys? We're going to look at the very first example that we are first teaching that we find in Scripture uh, going to the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent, this was the first appearance of Satan. He uh, appeared as a snake, okay? He was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And here's, here's Satan speaking. Really? He asked the woman, did God really say, so I'm going to give you five ploys of Satan. Ploy number one is this. He tempts us to doubt God at his word. God is restrictive, Eve. He's restricting you. Did he really say that? And Eve was like, hmm, maybe so. You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Here's ploy number two. Satan tempts us to distort God's word. God did not say to not eat from any tree. He said, don't just eat from the one tree. Enjoy all the rest. There was one prohibition. But here's Satan tempting Eve to think this. Well, God's all about rules. He's a, he's a God of prohibition. Satan tempted her at the point of her prohibition. You know what? There's innate in us to do what we shouldn't do. It's kind of like this. You see the point there? We do what we're not supposed to do. That is our inclination. That's part of what's happened because of the fall. Well, verse 2 says, woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say... You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And Satan said, well, you will not surely die, the serpent said, said to the woman. And here's ploy number three. Satan tempts us to deny God's word. Why? Why? You've got to understand that God's holding you you, you, you back. He did not say to not touch it. He says, just don't eat it. 
But he says in verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's ploy number four. Tempt us to accuse God of unworthy motives. You know, God, God's, God's not in the best for you. He, he's holding you back. He's keeping you from achieving your fullest potential. Actually, Scripture says Satan's a liar and a father of lies. Then it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was first good for food, second, pleasing to the eye, and third, desirable for gaining wisdom, why, why it looks so fresh and it looks so tasty. If it, if it looks good, it must taste good. And if it tastes good, well, it must be good. You see, this is what Satan does. He makes what's really bad look really good. So she ate some of the fruit. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Then he ate too. Now, sometimes Eve gets the bad rap here. Yeah, she's the first one to eat. But you know who was right there, right beside her the whole time? Adam. He was just, he was just passive, just watching it happen. Oh, whatever, Eve. You know, just whatever. Instead of being the man he should have been. All right. So she ate the fruit, gave some to her husband. Now, here's point number five. Tempt us to rationalize our sin. At that very moment, sin entered the human race. It messed up everything. That's why Jesus came, to rescue us from the penalty and the power of sin, to, to redeem and rescue broken humanity. You see, temptation really comes through three pathways. I'm going to go back to this previous verse here. Notice how I labeled each of these. Good for food. Temptation comes at us uh, through our appetites. Then I said, pleasing to the eye. Temptation comes at us through uh, what we see. And then also desirable for gaining wisdom. This is uh, the idea of pride, taking up the material things, or status, or image, success, you name it. You see, we can justify our sin in the most crazy ways. You've probably known people that they just did something absolutely ridiculous uh, just did not make a bit of sense to you and you think what were they thinking they weren't that's why they did that they weren't thinking what Satan wants us to do is to rationalize and don't think about the penalty that will come from that now giving you five ploys of Satan he tempts us to doubt God in his word tempts us to distort God's word, tempts us to deny God's word, tempts us to accuse God of unworthy motives, and finally tempts us to rationalize our sin. Now, I want to give some number four. We've seen what Jesus said. We see where Satan came from. We see the enemy's ploys. Now, let's look at the practical thing. How do we respond to this malevolent being that's, that's going to do everything he can to take us down. Well, I'm going to give you what I call five countermeasures, our five I wills that counter these uh, temptations that we face from the enemy. So the first one, to counter doubting God's word, here it is. I will choose to believe God has my best interest in mind. Folks, listen, God is for you. He's on your side. 
He's not opposing you, unless we sin, and he's going to. His bent is to bless and to love us and to forgive us. He wants us to prosper in the truest sense, and the Hebrew word captures that idea, shalom. Shalom means fullness and completeness and wholesomeness. That's what he has in store for us. So to counter doubting God's word, I will choose to believe God has my best interest in mind. To counter distortion of God's will, I will spend time in his word. You see, God's word is his love letter to you and me. It's the instruction manual. You want to live life well? Follow the instruction manual. We know that Satan wants to distort God's word. The way you, can, you cannot give in to that is know this book. Read it for yourself. Study it. Memorize it. And do what you're doing today. You're coming to hear Todd. Get involved in Bible studies. There's a great um, online source. If you want an online source for all kinds of different reading plans, Bible reading plans, uversion.com, Y-O-U, uversion.com. They're free. You can download them to your phones, your, your iPad. It's just a gazillion different reading plans. Get into God's Word. Expose yourself to God's Word. Here's the next one. To counter denying God's Word... I will yield to his promptings. Now, I've shared this with you before. There's a little phrase called, yes, Lord, that I learned from my wife. Sure, I learned a lot of things from her. And when we met, she taught me this. And basically, yes, Lord, is this. It's a disposition of your heart. It's positioning your heart before you know what God wants. Before you know what you, we, we know what he wants in general, okay. But as we face day-to-day decisions, we're, cho- we're faced with a choice. God's way or, or not God's way. Yes, Lord, it's positioning our heart that we say yes before we know what it is. That's kind of scary. And if you don't believe that God's a benevolent God and loves you on your side, you're going to have a hard time with this. But if you believe God loves you and he's got your best for you, this is not going to be that hard. Yes, Lord, is saying, well, yes, Lord. And he brings this decision he wants us to make. Well, I've already said yes, Lord. And then another say, yes, Lord. And the next day he brings a decision. Well, I've already said yes. There's no wrestling with it. I've already said yes. So to counter denying God's word, it's I will yield his promptings. It's that yes, Lord idea. Number four, to counter accusing God of unworthy motives. See number one. Believe he has our best interest in mind. Here's the fifth one. To counter rationalizing sin, I will consider the consequences of any potential sinful choices I'm tempted to make. What I mean by this is this. And this is more of these pre, this kind of premeditated. Sometimes we may, we may you know, just real quickly respond with a, with a hateful word. That's part of it too. I'm talking about when we really deliberate and we mull over and we think about the sin we're about to make, commit. Ask yourself, how's that going to affect my soul? How's it going to affect my heart? What would my kids say about that if I did that? Would God be honored? What would my spouse, my best friend say about that? So it's a matter of thinking like, well, you know, that would be a bad choice. I'm not going to make that choice. To counter rationalizing sin, I will consider the consequences of any potential choice. So let's put all these I wills together. To counter the enemy's ploys, I will believe he has my best interest in mind. He's on your side. He's for you. Number two, spend time in his word. Because Satan wants to distort this. The way you know how, know, can keep from giving in to distortions is know this book. 
Number three, yield his promptings with that yes, Lord, disposition of your heart. Number four, consider the consequences of any potential sinful choice. Now, let me ask you, which one of these resonates the most with you? That maybe you need to give some attention to. Is it this one? Believe that he has my best interest in mind. Maybe you like kind of doubted God. Well, you know, things aren't going so well for me. I guess God doesn't have my best interest in mind. He does. Maybe this one. Maybe you realize, you know, I, there's this peripheral engagement I have with God's word during the week. I need to change that. Maybe that's it for you. Maybe you need to develop this disposition. It's not like every single decision you have to wrestle with, every, every moral decision, you've already made the decision. You've, pre, you've pre-contemplated the decision you're going to make, and it's a yes to God. And maybe for you, you need to give a little more thought to, you know, I really need to think about uh, when I'm tempted to sin, what the consequences might be. Now, I want to give you a quick review here. We've seen what Jesus said from that passage in Mark. We've seen where Satan came from. We've seen the enemy's ploys, and we looked at some responses. So I want to give you some practical suggestions in addition to what we looked at so far. Number one is this, avoid preoccupation with Satan and demons. You know, I'm not going to preach on this probably more than once a year. And we see it in Scripture, and it brings up some things we need to be aware of, Then we'll learn a little more about, about Satan. But don't get really sucked into that, and you can um, I, I did my doctoral uh, work, my, my doctoral ministry on spiritual warfare. And you really, when you get into reading a lot of this and reading these books on it, I mean, the enemy notices and he, he ratchets up his opposition to us. So avoid preoccupation. Understand his basic ploys and how he works and how to respond, but don't keep him central. Number two, stay away from occult practices and media. And I just want to be real frank with you here, Okay. Uh, Ouija boards, horoscopes, uh, movies and TV shows, and music that glorify Satan, that glorify uh, evil. You need to stay away from those. Because when we expose ourselves to those, it gives the enemy a little step into our heart. Stay away from that stuff. Just get rid of it. Place Christian images in your home. There's not that there's something magical about that. But in our home, we have some Christian pictures. And we have some scripture on our walls. Put that on your walls. Because it reminds you, a subtle reminder, every time you walk by it, even though we kind of forget it's there, it's that subtle reminder, hey, God's, this is God's house. This is where he's in charge. And we want to honor him. Number four, promptly confess any sin. Because when we sin and don't confess, that's a toehold for the enemy. And then a foothold. And then he has entree into our heart that we don't want to give him. Promptly confess any sin. Number five, get a prayer partner. Maybe you're really struggling right now. You really feel um, uh, the attacks by the enemy. Get somebody else that will pray with you and pray for you. And then here's number six, keep your focus on Jesus. And this is probably the most important one. See, it's kind of a opposite. Uh, well, along, it reinforces this, but we keep Jesus central. We keep what he wants from us. We keep our love for him central, our focus on him, our commitment to him central, and Satan's periphery. Okay, now sometimes we have to deal directly with him, Jesus central, and all the rest of this periphery. So, some practical suggestions. So, here's what I hope you'll do. I hope you give some thought to what we talked about, Give some consideration to, okay, how, how maybe is the Holy Spirit prompting me to respond in a different way or build things into my life so that when I'm tempted, like Eve was tempted, 
to, to deny and uh, refuse to believe God's word, all those kind of things. I've got some, I have an action plan before I deal with that. So that's my challenge. Figure out your action plan so that when you're faced in these, in these war, warfare situations, you've got some tools that you can use. All right? Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that you are all-powerful. You're omnipresent. You're omniscient. You are uh, more powerful than Satan and all his minions together. We thank you that you sent Jesus who died on the cross so that we might be rescued from the penalty and the power and ultimately the presence of sin. We thank you that he defeated death, that he defeated the enemy, that one day when he returns, he will have us full defeat. Between now and then, Lord, we know that Satan hates you and therefore he can't get to you, so therefore he takes out his anger on us. Help us to realize that we have these weapons, we have these tools that we can use that are empowered by your spirit that we can use in those times of, of great difficulty in this, in this spiritual battle that we're, that we're in. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would just bring to mind one or two points of this message today. May it really stick. And before I close this prayer, I just want to say maybe you are out there Maybe it's your first time in church in a long time. Maybe you've been thinking about Jesus. You've been thinking about your eternity. Maybe today is the day when you say yes to Jesus. When you turn from your sins, call repentance and place your faith in Jesus. You give your heart to Jesus. If that's where you are, I'm going to invite you right now to come into a relationship with Jesus. Here's how it will work. I'm going to say a very simple short prayer in phrases. And I'm going to pause. I'm going to ask you under your breath or in your heart to repeat this prayer. Now, there's nothing magical about the prayer, but prayer is the way we tell God what's in our heart. So here's this prayer. If you'd like to give your heart to Jesus, would you do it now? Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. By faith, I turn from my sin. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross for my sin. I believe he rose from the dead. I place my faith in Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I want to have my sins forgiven. I commit my life to Jesus right now. Father, my prayer would be that several would have taken that step of faith, securing their eternal destiny with you. So Lord, take these truths, build them into our hearts so that they're part of our regular uh, walk with you. I pray this in your name. Amen.